Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week on Startup Dads, our guest is Mike Quinn, the co-founder and CEO of Boost Technology, a digital platform on a mission to enable 100 million informal small businesses to thrive in Africa's digital economy. Before that, Mike had an amazing journey creating one of Africa's first fintechs called Zuna. He's written about his 10-year journey and the highs and lows in a book called Failing to Win. In this episode, we cover building with the fewest right people you can, learning how to learn, and the difference between conversations and meetings in a Zoom world. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santarasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Startup Dads. I'm delighted to welcome Mike Quinn to the show. Mike, hi. Hi, Amrit. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have you. I'm really excited for this one because your journey itself is big enough to worthy a book being written about it. So could you maybe just talk to me a little bit about your first startup journey in Africa? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. I'll try to do it briefly. As you mentioned, I did write a book about it after 10 years of building this startup called Failing to Win. So all the details are in that, but I'm Canadian. I moved to Zambia in 2009 and co-founded one of the very first fintechs on the continent, which was a purpose-driven startup called Zona that helped scale 2 million unbanked consumers in Zambia and then Malawi send and receive money transfers. Both these markets had like 90% of adults didn't have bank accounts. They were complete cash economies. And the things that we take for granted now, like digital payments and moving money around and storing money on your phones didn't exist when we started that. So had an amazing journey building that company for over 10 years, raised over $35 million of venture funding, grew it to like 200 plus staff, but then didn't get like the big exit or have the big unicorn success story that I think we were all hoping for and left in 2019. And I ended up taking a sabbatical and writing a book documenting my lessons learned and getting back on my feet and then starting a new company called Boost. So I'm on my second startup now. I was thinking about this when I was reading about you because 2009, fintech, that wasn't a thing, right? People weren't calling these things fintech startups and all of that. And, you know, you hear about the world now talking about banking the unbanked and in a fascinating way, it's probably not seen with quite the same purpose as the way you went about it. If you see it as a broad spectrum problem, there are lots of companies from the West going over to think a little bit about that problem. I'm fascinated to know what it was like operating a fintech before fintech was a thing. Yeah. People who who haven't spent a lot of time, specifically probably in Kenya, might not know is that fintech really was born from Africa. There was a unbelievably successful model called M-Pesa, rolled out by one of the largest telcos on the continent in Kenya, where people with mobile phones could store value, send and receive money. And I believe it was launched, I think, in 2007 is when it started. And this grew to be bigger than all the banks combined processing billions of dollars a month and a huge proportion of Kenya's GDP. And we saw this, myself and my two co-founders, in 2009. And we're looking at this model that was, like at the time, just hitting exponential growth in Kenya. And it wasn't called fintech, as you mentioned, but it was mobile money. That was the term that M-Pesa coined and started asking ourselves, well, how could we bring this to Zambia? But we weren't a telco. We didn't have a subscriber base. We didn't have a brand. 
Uh, we didn't even have access to a SIM card. So we had to build everything from scratch. And the market characteristics were very similar where you have cash economy, the vast majority of people don't have bank accounts and the very simple need of moving money from point A to point B for paying for your kids' school fees or you're a small business owner and you need to pay your suppliers or you need to send money to a dependent for a medical bill or to buy medicine, like these very basic essential needs at the time couldn't be met digitally. People would physically carry cash around or go to a bus station and give a, a suitcase full of cash to a driver and pay a very high fee. And so we built a technology and rolled out this service in Zambia for people to, to go to these like micro kiosks. Think of like an Uber driver sitting in a kiosk with a cell phone. And that person would get a commission for doing a cash in and cash out transaction like a human ATM machine. But it enabled people to send money across the country digitally and instantly. And it was very revolutionary for the market. It took a long time to figure it out. And nobody had raised a Series A venture backed round in the startup space in Africa before. So we were doing a lot of things the first time. And I was a startup entrepreneur for the first time and a CEO for the first time. And we just ended up screwing up a lot of things and getting a lot wrong. But over the years, kind of built up this incredible business. I was talking to an advisor this morning because I'm going through a crazy intense time at HX. And speaking honestly, it's a bit bumpy for me right now. And he said to me, Amrit, if you get 30% right, you can feel happy. This is the first time you've done this. Your business is growing at wild speed. The question I have for you is if you can teleport yourself back to then and maybe with the knowledge you have now, how you feel about your performance to having now had the experience to know that shit never goes in a straight line, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the book I wrote called Failing to Win, Hard-Earned Lessons from a Purpose-Driven Startup. And I left this business like failing to exit. We had a major crisis at the end, a $40 million funding round collapsed. We got attacked by two very deep-pocketed competitors that took a lot of our market share. And I felt like a failure. And I ended up writing as like a personal reflection. And then realized through the process of writing how much over the 10 years I was building this company, the successes and the achievements we had were linked to a whole series of failures that came before. So the whole startup journey was like fail, 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 breakthrough or win. Then that's what gets the LinkedIn announcement, right? And then you go back to failing. And so I started to view my journey as like I was failing in order to win. And that's what we were doing at Zona. And then I was kind of able to crystallize like the eight biggest failures that we had from things that are very common across all startups around managing a board, co-founder dynamics, like failing to become a team, managing culture, failed investment rounds, scaling up your headcount too fast, failing to lead the market against competitors. And then what I learned from them and the last section was called winning, which was how I kind of translated those lessons into a new business design for my next startup and a series of like virtues and principles that I was like, this is how I want to go build a new company based on these lessons learned. And a key lesson was building with the fewest right people. I find like, especially when you're venture backed, you spend all this time fundraising. And then as soon as you get the money, you then like hire really, really quickly. But then your cost structure grows, your culture dilutes. I've kind of learned to be a lot more thoughtful around making sure that I build this new company with the smallest team possible, but then every person on that team is right. They're the right fit for the culture, right experience level for the role, which allows us to move faster and to not have like a lot of the people dynamics and challenges that I think you get when you just like scale your headcount too fast. 
very powerful lesson. We just went through that at HX. Our business grew from 20 to 45 people over the last year. And in absolute terms, that's not a large number. But as you say, scaling your culture when you double your team is hard. Very hard. The fascinating thing about startups is that it doesn't actually matter where you are in the world or what industry or segment you're in. We all go through pretty much the exact same challenges. I realized that. I always thought my experience was unique because I'm running this like Southern Africa fintech business. And there was like all these challenges. We're probably unique to the market. Like we had currency blowups and maybe not so unique after, after kind of the pandemic. These macro effects like are very common in Africa. Yeah, just those fundamental challenges of picking the right co-founders and trying to find product market fit and scaling your team and culture and building a competitive strategy. It doesn't matter where you are, or what you're doing. You have to overcome those to be successful as an entrepreneur. For sure, for sure. One of the amazing things about getting advice and having investors and a network is the value comes from the unique bits, but lots of it is very similar, as you've said. And being able to learn from other people's mistakes, I suppose that's part of the motivation for writing a book is that you can share the learnings you've got, right? Yeah. And so much of my success and my personal growth was having really amazing mentors and having other founders that I could lean on for advice. And when you're successful, like you look back and you're like, I'm only successful because of the community that kind of helped me become successful and the privilege I was born into. And that is my motivation of just trying to help other first time founders or other entrepreneurs doing hard things to not make all the same mistakes. Like there's enough mistakes you will make as an entrepreneur. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you could do everything Elon Musk does and follow his footsteps 24-7, 365 days a year, but you're never going to be Elon Musk, right? Everybody's going to go through their own series of failures and have to find their own path. I always tell myself, try and make new mistakes, Samra. That's your goal. If you can make new ones, that's great. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of, I suppose, go back and talk about the dad side, because when I do the sums, I see a man who moved from Calgary to Zambia and then had two kids abroad while scaling a fintech. So talk to me about how the hell did you do that? So I had my daughter in 2012 and my son in 2015. So they're now nine and almost seven. And it was actually quite remarkable how I swear to God, I think it made me a better leader and a better CEO. It was really, really hard. There were times where it was like super difficult, like especially like in the early days where it's like the sleep goes away, right? Because when you're a founder and there's always the crisis, you're always like, there's a cash cliff, there's you know stuff happening all the time. And then you throw on top of that, like now you're just not sleeping. Um, <laughs> it's challenging. But I think what kids really helped me learn, two things. They helped me prioritize. Before I had kids, I just worked all the time. Then I had kids and I'm like, you know what? I can't because there's baby that needs nappies changing or a toddler that needs to be played with or my wife needs help. Right. And so I had to prioritize better and just like cut other things that were non-essential for work and that helped me delegate better and manage people better. And I think there was a lot of benefits from that. But they also taught me how to be present, I think, which is very important. And it's something like I'll probably battle with for the rest of my life because it's always hard when your mind is going 15 different directions and you're juggling all these balls. But kids, they don't wait for you to come play with them later. They're like when they want something and they want it now. And so there was a lot of, I think, upsides. And I had amazing, amazing wife who was also working Full-time, you know, she took a, a short maternity leave. We were lucky in South Africa because we had help. It almost became harder when we moved to the UK last year. And then we kind of had different lifestyle in the UK with no help in the middle of lockdown, um, which I'm sure we can talk about at some point. But 
looking back, I actually can't even remember my life without kids now. It's like there's, you know, before and an after and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. No. Could I ask, you know, one of the things I think about often changing things within your control. I've got incredible admiration for you. It sounds like you changed so many variables at once. You, you went out to Africa, you did that, and then you were kind of having kids as well. So how did you keep yourself grounded with all of those things going on? Because being honest with you, that's one of the things I find hardest to do is who am I now? HX needs me, my family needs me. Like, who am I? What's the best version of me to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the honest answer is for a long time, I was probably horrible at it. I've always been very tenacious. I think it's a personality trait. So my response to like hardship was like, all right, just roll up my sleeves and get moving and not making time for myself, sleeping less, being more stressed out, skipping like the exercise sessions. I'm pretty positive. I never had any really bad habits. I didn't drink that much. And there's things that could have been a lot worse. So I've always kind of been quite healthy and, and had a very good home life and a stable relationship with my wife, which is amazingly helpful. But one of the things I learned after leaving, because it wasn't a successful departure. After 10 years, I left having resigned from this company and shrinking down our staff and headcount and the company nearly collapsed. And that was like the hardest part. And I really looked back and started reflecting on how I need to actually take a lot better care of myself. And got into just very regular exercise routines. You know, I try to meditate a few times a week. I take a lot more time for me now and 41. So with maturity, probably the big thing I can say is that I do differently is I don't let the lows be so low or the highs be so high. I kind of look back and I now have all these experiences that I can be like, you know what? I remember a time that was worse than what's happening now. And when something goes well, I know like, it's probably not gonna go well for very much longer. I'm like, oh, this is like a good moment. We should celebrate it and make sure we like take it in, but also know that like tomorrow is going to be a new fire and just be like totally okay with that. Whereas in the early days, I think to what you said, Amrit, I probably just like buried a lot of that stuff and didn't make time for myself and didn't celebrate the successes and got overly stressed when things weren't going my way. Yeah. Speaking honestly to you, I'm still struggling with that now. The reality of knowing that that must be there rather than it being something you can rob time from as part of the buildings of the strong foundation so that you make the time to invest in it is so key. And learning to do that is hard, I think, because like you say, everyone's got demands on you and it's easy just to rob all of you to try and to deal with everyone else. Two things that have helped me with that challenge is it was a tip in Ben Horowitz's book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I'm sure many people have read, but like embrace the struggle and just realizing like it's not about the goal or the outcome. It's like when you're facing that, you need to step back and be like, this is where you're growing and you're learning. And if it doesn't work out, life will still go on. And even if it does work out, there'll be a new struggle. So just kind of really leaning into that. And then the other thing is having gratitude, trying to take a moment every day to just be thankful for something and verbalizing that. Like I find that's quite helpful. Massively so. This is not something that I've talked about before, but when I'm having a hard day, my therapy that I do to myself, I put the struggle on, I go for a walk, I listen to it. And I think all of the hard things, if you overcome them, I think it's kind of you're failing to win, right? It's like overcoming those things is what creates the success. So I can relate to that very much. And getting back to the dad part, when you're having a hard time, like just go be with your kids because you'll forget about what you're thinking about pretty quickly. A hundred percent. question I wanted to ask you is how did your time in Africa change you as a dad as time went on? Great question. We had such an interesting experience, like having the chance to live in, in a totally different culture, 
we lived in Cape Town. Mainly that's where our kids grew up. So I was in Zambia before that. We traveled to Zambia and Malawi with both my kids, but like they really resonate strongly with Cape Town. And you have this like amazingly beautiful city with some of the richest parts of the world across a river, across a valley. There's like some of the poorest parts of the world, lots of diversity. And so I think they had this really amazing experience of being somewhere different and just like constantly just being exposed to, to different stimulus or stimuli all the time. Being a dad in that environment, it was fun and it was always different. We'd go surfing and then we'd go to a wine farm and then we'd go do a township tour and we'd travel a lot. I didn't even realize how much I was changing and growing, but I moved to the UK like a year ago and looking back at just like how formative those years were for my kids and how amazing it was to actually be in Africa and live in these different places and kind of experience what we were able to experience and go through the early phases of what is now becoming a very real startup scene and I could probably even call it a boom now. In 2012, my company Zona was probably the first startup to raise like a Series A. We did a $4 million Series A. Last year, there was like over $4 billion of venture funding to African startups. There's like a number of unicorns, a number of exits, thousands of new startups are forming. It was fun to kind of be at the very leading edge of that. And then have like this amazing home life, like kind of behind the scenes. It's super cool. And I think you often only see it when you reflect. It's failing to win, right? You've got that very clear mindset of seeing how all of those things motivated you towards your future successes. And I think that's a nice segue. As you said to me in the green room, moving to London from Cape Town with two kids, I imagine a pretty impactful culture shock across multiple axes and then lockdown. You managed to maintain your sunny disposition through that bike. That's my question. So my wife is British Italian. We actually met in London. We studied international development at the LSE together back in like 2006. So it wasn't a strange city for us. And our kids had like visited a few times, but she got a new job. And I had just started this business completely remotely. It was a pan-African startup building a conversational commerce platform for small retailers to order stock and to access working capital finance and get insights on their business. So offline mom and pop shops. And I had already two co-founders in London and one of them, our my CTO, we were working together for eight months. We never met because it was like this lockdown experience of just completely remote. And then my wife got this job and we said, oh, you know, this is a good time for a change and can be closer to her family, kind of split time between Manchester and Italy and Sardinia. But what we didn't plan for was the lockdown that we were entering into. So we arrived in December, 2020, with the plan of like our kids starting school in January and we had a house in the school and we were very excited. But then middle of summer, Cape Town, leaving this like glorious place that we had to a small flat in rainy, dark London. And then the next COVID wave kicks off, school shut down. Both my kids are not able to go to school. They have no friends. They have to start online learning that they've never done before. My wife's starting a new job. I'm running a startup and I'm also rewriting my last version of my book at the time. It was crazy. <laughs> I, I kind of have a dark spot in my mind where I'm like, how did we even survive that? And the only thing that I think kept us sane was that the playgrounds were still open because the first lockdown in South Africa, like for five weeks, we weren't even allowed to leave our house. Like you couldn't walk your dog. You could go in your, like if you had a back garden, but you weren't allowed to go to playgrounds or anything. And so that was hard, but it was like sunny outside and we had a nice garden. Whereas in London, like at least the playgrounds are open. So I, I would just like work all morning, 
kids were kind of managing the best they could. My son couldn't read yet. So it's not like you just throw them in front of the computer and say like, go do virtual learning. You have to be with them. So my wife and I were kind of juggling that. And then I would take them to the playground for like three hours every afternoon. And we bonded a lot. So I have these mixed feelings because I look back at January to March last year and I'm like, I spent three quality hours with my kids like every single day. And now that they have friends and they're in school and like life's back to normal, they even when we go to the playground, they're just like, bye, dad. And they run away, right? And they go play with other people. But they didn't know anybody. So they were very much like attached to the hip the whole time. But the schooling part was tough. It was very, very stressful. And I'm sure like a lot of parents like went through that experience of it makes you appreciate teachers <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also makes you realize the educational institution does much more than teach. Yeah. Right. I don't know if you've ever had any thoughts on homeschooling or anything like that. We talk to entrepreneurs on the show and a fair few of them are really advocates of homeschooling. When you think about the routine and stability and extra support network you get, it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah. I grew up as the son of two teachers, two uh, secondary school teachers. So I always had a very strong sense of like education in my upbringing and Canada's got an education system that's very strong. My mom would always tell me the point of going to school is to learn how to learn. It's not to like learn knowledge. It's to learn how to learn and you build social relationships. And my wife and I have always felt that. So we wanted to come to London. We were excited because of the diversity and London's such an amazing city because everybody's from everywhere else, right? You have so much diversity in the city and it has so much to offer. Having two months of homeschooling and then we had like some homeschooling that we had to do in South Africa. We're very happy to not do that ever again. <laughs> the teachers, I think, do an amazing job and they had even a harder time of it. The kids of essential school or essential workers were physically at school, right? So teachers who had only been trained to do in-person teaching suddenly had to do virtual teaching, but they had a mixed class of some kids there, some kids virtual, some kids like ours that they'd never met before. And just even seeing how that happened, where it all happened very suddenly, because you remember that lockdown, it came last January. It was, they were saying the entire way through December that schools were for sure going to open. And then like three days before, they're like, schools are going to close for two weeks and then, then for six weeks and then for like pretty much the whole term. Even this year, both my kids got Omicron in January. So it was like deja vu where it's last year they had to stay home not to get COVID. This year they had to stay home because they had COVID. But half their school had it, half the teachers had it. I'm just hopeful that we're kind of over the worst of it now. We can get back to living life like normal. Yeah, for sure. How has it been taking that beyond your immediate family circle to your new startup, like building that out? And, you know, how have you found the impact of COVID on your team's family and how have you worked with it? Yeah, so we set up virtually from the beginning. I was expecting to have to travel before COVID really was getting going because we have operating teams in a few countries in Ghana, South Africa, Nigeria, and Egypt. And it was by design a platform business with like the tech being built in the UK and we were expecting to have to travel. So we've had to figure out how to completely work online where like most people have never met most other people started off with me like bringing in people I knew and trusted. But now as we're growing and expanding, it's just like virtual recruiting and virtual onboarding and virtual culture building and virtual product development. And like, you know, I have an amazing CTO co-founder who's never like been able to talk to a customer for the product he's building. So we've had to like build a whole bunch of hacks and processes to compensate for that. I think the downside we're experiencing probably now a little bit is like things are opening up again, but everybody's like pretty comfortable not meeting in person now. We've almost like shifted the pendulum where 
even in London, like there's three of us and we live in like different parts of London and we're like, should we meet up? And then it's like, ah, it's just like hop on meet or Zoom because it saves us like, you know, an hour tube journey. And then you get to the point where you're quite insular because you just don't get out very often. You're not meeting enough people. You're not having coffees and getting kind of that stimulus and growth. So I, I think there's pros and cons. And actually, I've learned to love working from home because it gives me solitude and I'm not stuck in meetings all the time. And I've kind of figured out how to manage my calendar and not just be on Zoom calls all day. I'm finding that I have to very proactively like push myself to get out of my flat and make sure I'm making time for the physical face-to-face. And then when I'm doing the face-to-face, I'm trying to prioritize like relationship building. So it's not like going to have a meeting. It's actually, let's go have lunch or let's have coffee. Let's have a connection. That's not just like, you know, an agenda. That's an absolutely fascinating and really interesting insight. I've never reflected on it until you played it back. I found myself doing the same thing. I think the pandemic has changed the meaning of a meeting for me. If we need to have a meeting where it's highly transactional and I need to capture some data and it's useful for us to be on Zoom and I can write some things down, having a coffee is not the same sort of meeting that you want to have over Zoom. And that's a really interesting framing. It's really hard to have a conversation virtually. Like we're having one now. We're not making eye contact, right? Because we're both staring at our computer and like the camera's not quite there. And I had, uh, I actually managed to get some travel in in November where I did a couple of trips and went back to like the face-to-face for a few weeks. And then I came back to London and got back on Zoom. And I noticed that where I'm looking and I'm like, nobody's looking at us. I almost like switched back into like seeing people in their eyes for the first time in like a year. It is like very different, this like virtual living. I'm not sold on the metaverse. Hey, I'm like, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm with you. I, I get enough virtual living in my, you know, yeah, enough virtual work. I, I want to, yeah. I want more physical time with people. I'm trying to reduce the amount of virtual time I have rather than increase it. I'm totally with you. The big question I have for you, Mike, is what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? Great question. I think the biggest lesson I've learned is to really embrace and learn from failure. I genuinely believe that failure can become a superpower. I didn't used to believe that. And having gone through like some pretty intense failure experiences, failure, it hurts and it sucks, but we all go through it. And like, not only just in startup world, but like in life, it's like a very normal thing. And I kind of learned how to roll with it and be part of the pain when it's happening, but then to look back and try to really objectively look at what did I learn and how can I grow and improve next time? And I think that that's a really positive life skill to learn. And I I think it can be like amazing as an entrepreneur because it gets you into this scenario where like, you know, you go on Monday morning and you have a meeting and your team's like, oh, everything's like going wrong and blowing up and the numbers are suck and, you know, our customer churn is too high. And then you can kind of like step back and be like, okay, like why are things not working and what are we learning from it? And that gets you into like a better process of finding root causes of problems and then moving on to fixing them a lot faster. I see this with my kids. When something goes wrong, they'll have like a meltdown right away and like the world's going to end. And just like teaching them that lesson, like, you know, it's it's not going to end. It's going to be fine. 
Yeah, 100%. I love that. I was joking with my wife who then immediately put me in my place watching my daughter learn how to throw. And I said in my very amorate way, this is like watching a neural network train itself. Right. Uh, she's like, you fucking robot, Amrit. Uh, right? But the reason I say that is it's fascinating because it's the repeated failure that gives her the calibration. Eventually she gets it right. She's throwing a ball in a bucket. Really interesting. I was like observing that. And I think if you can imbue that culture safely in your business, it's something very, very powerful because it can self-heal and self-correct. That's amazing about kids is they just try and they fall down and they get up and they fall down, like riding a bike or learning a new skill and there's no fear of trying, but when we become adults, we're like scared to try because we're scared of failing. You got to shift the default to like, you know, I want to fail because once I fail, that's the signal that I need to then adjust. And then I can get on to the winning part after that. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's a wonderful way to wrap up the show. I like your phrase. This hasn't been a meeting. It's been a really great conversation, but before you go, we like to wrap up the show with our regular feature startup shout outs, where we shine a light on an organization, entrepreneur, startup, anyone in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup shout outs. So who's yours, Mike? Yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Rossiello. She is the founder of Aza Finance, one of the payment and blockchain pioneers in Africa. I actually had lunch with her. She lives in London now, moved from Senegal recently. And she is a single mom of three kids and running a startup that's been scaling fast. They acquired a big company in South Africa last year. I kind of meet her and she told me, she's like, yeah, Mike, I'm doing your and your wife's job at the same time. So I'm combined you <laughs> yeah. and Isabel and like, that's me. <laughs> I can't even imagine. And then add a kid. <laughs> and her third kid is a baby who was born during lockdown as well. So I'm quite in awe of her. She's a phenomenal entrepreneur. And yeah, shout out to Elizabeth. That is seriously heroic. When I'm feeling stressed, I can think of Elizabeth and go, okay, come on, Amrit, dig deep. Two extra kids and double the duties to do. You can do it. So, Awesome. Well, Mike, look, that's been absolutely cracking. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amrit. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 